Welcome to Femme Detail episode five. Yep. We're Jess and Morty, two femmes that tell tales of the weird, the bad and the spooky. Indeed we are. Have you been up to anything weird, bad or spooky? I thought I was going to get murdered at the train station yesterday. That's, but that's fun. I didn't. Well, so I, I'm glad. All's well that ends well. <laughs> That's fair enough. Public transport <coughs> is one of those places. What's the word? Like a lineal space? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's not quite of this world. There's something like a bit up about them, I think. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're sort of in between realities. Yes, exactly. Elevators, staircases. Planes. Yeah. And uh, nothing good happens on planes. Yeah. And uh, trains. Yeah. There you go. Uh, I was going to say, I don't have much. <laughs> Foreplay is the wrong word. <laughs> I don't have much pre-podcast this week. You could call it a verbal appetizer. Oh, no, I don't like that at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, no worries. Shall we just get cracked into it then? Yeah. As I said, I got a long one this week, so I'm ready. might as well. Uh... I'm, ready to ab- I'm ready to just absorb. I've got my OJ. Yeah. My delicious orange juice. All right. Well. Gather around, young Morty, as I tell you the sordid tale of Trevor Throneberry. That is a cool name. Does that ring any bells? None whatsoever. Uh, the Excellent. only bell that's ringing is the wild thornberry. I, the whole way through. So actually I had several thoughts about her name. Yeah. The first one is because it's almost spelt like Trevor mm. and me being a knobby Australian. I was like, Trevor, that's... You know, like a manly truck driver name. Anyway, but it's Trevor, mm. which, yeah, okay, I guess that makes sense. But I was, yeah, Trev. So the whole time I was writing it, I did think it was Trevor. So if I say Trevor, just run with it. It's potentially a thing that we'll could just, happen. We'll just roll with the punches. Yeah. So when I first read about this, I thought it was going to be fun. And then I looked into the details and I was like, ooh, that's actually kind of uh, tragic and uncomfortable. Don't you love it when that happens? <sighs> Why? Why do we do this to ourselves? Yeah. And our topic this week is identity theft. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> you look so sinister. I kept thinking, do you remember the clinkers ad for with the unicorns and they say paternity test? What? You're looking at me so blankly. Okay, there was an <laughs> ad for clinkers. You know clinkers? Yeah. Yeah, so like the chocolate and they have the coloured, what do you call it? The it's, coloured, like, it's like honeycomb. Yeah, the generic coloured candy stuff inside. Yeah. They had an ad a couple of years ago and it's these unicorns and they're talking and I can't remember the name, but it's like, Chad, I don't think I'm the father of Sunny Bell or whatever, <laughs> whatever their unicorn name <laughs> is. And... It's like, well, you know how we'll solve that. And they do it with a clinker. So it's like, if it's pink, it's mine. If it's like, <laughs> and at the end of it, oh no, it came up with the opposite thing. Paternity test, paternity test, paternity test. Anyway. That's, so are you sure you didn't dream that? I am a hundred percent sure. I will put it up in our, our Facebook group or on the Instagram and be like, suck it, Maud. But yeah, I kept hearing identity theft in that. Like identity theft, identity theft. <laughs> so that's just my brain. Credit time. 
for, so first up, I've got my main squeeze Wikipedia, as you do, for their entry on Triva Throneberry. And the second credit goes to the Texas Monthly for their March 2002 article, The Day Treva Disappeared. And look, that's all I used. (laughs) This is a hella big story. And I just, it was a lot. (laughs) So I have done a lot of trimming, cutting where I can. But if you're super into it, I would recommend you read that Texas Monthly article, The Day Treva Throneberry Disappeared, because it's got the whole shebangabang in it. Mm Mm-hmm. I also think it would be uh, amiss of me to not mention content warning for child molestation and rape. I don't intend to go into huge detail about it, but I want people to know it's an element of this tale. And if that's something that's not for you, don't feel obliged to listen on. Treva Joyce Thornberry was born on the 18th of May, 1969. Oh. <laughs> was that an awe to 69? I don't know. Were you just feeling wistful? I don't know. I don't know what that was. I'm sorry. Uh, Drink your OJ. Get some sugar up in you. In Wichita Falls, Texas, to Carl and Patsy Throneberry. And I was thinking Wichita. I'm crap at geography, but apparently my brain absorbed enough American pop culture to be like, Wichita is in Kansas, not Texas. Yeah. And I Googled it. But there's a Wichita, Kansas, and a Wichita Falls in Texas. So they are both legit. I mean, I can't talk smack about America doing that. Australia is so bad for it. We've got Paris. We've got Texas. I mean, even you and I. Like, we live in New England. In New South Wales. (laughs) So enjoy that geography lesson. Uh, We need to come up with a name for this town. I don't know. This is my old time voice, apparently. I'm, I'm feeling tired today. Why don't we just name it after something else? <laughs> Jolly good show. <laughs> South Wales. Okay, but that, that's a little on the nose. How about we go New South Wales? Capital. Capital <laughs> suggestion. <laughs> Didn't even bother to modify my voice. Just run with I it. I just, I will find any excuse to do that voice. Her parents, Carl and Patsy, they sound in very all American. They're known around the area as good country folk. Her father was illiterate and dropped out of school in year six, or the sixth grade, as the Americans would call it, I guess. And then, <laughs> oh, as the sorry. No, that's okay. What were you going to say? It sounded like you said as the Americans call it. <laughs> I was just, yep, I've lost it. <laughs> no, if the Americans start speaking, you got some some real issues. Yeah. And when I read this description of Treva's parents in the Texas Monthly, I knew I couldn't improve on perfection. So I've just quoted this in its entirety. The writing was amazing. They lived in a small frame home decorated with a photo of John Wayne on one wall and a rug that depicted the Last Supper on the other. (laughs) Carl was a big lumbering man, a truck driver in the oil fields. He had met Patsy in the early 50s at a soda fountain in Oklahoma. And after a few weeks of courting, a few weeks of courting, they had driven to the A&P supermarket in Wichita Falls, where the butcher, who was also a preacher, had wiped his hands on his apron, pulled out a small pocket Bible, and performed their wedding ceremony out in the A&P parking lot while the couple sat holding hands in the back of Carl's Chevy. Um, I don't know if that's romantic or not. Look, I'm kind of here for it. Yeah. We're both small town bumpkins. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> no hesitation. There's certainly a a, a picture there, isn't There's, there? That's some serious like southwestern gothic though. The John butcher, Wayne like, wiping the blood off his himself and then picking up a Bible, and I reckon the Bible has like bloody thumbprints in it or something. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, I love it. I kind of like him as like a like a side character in a show. Trevor's family later moved to Electra, Texas. Another great place name. The high school librarian called her a quiet type person. And in the afternoons, Trevor waitressed at the local drive-in whistle stop. It's a small town, this Electra, and everyone knows everyone. Everyone knows who Trevor and her family are. She was described as shy, but happy enough. During her breaks at work and at school, she was known for sitting and reading from her Bible. Wholesome hobby. So wholesome, it's unwholesome. Yeah. Do you feel that? Yeah. There is such a thing as too much Bible. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably not healthy to be a hobby. Just be like, what would Zipporah do or something? <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, so she's happy enough, but people did notice she occasionally would get a bit vacant or a bit glazed over. Oh man, same. yeah and then one sunday at the pentecostal church she attended she got on her knees and she yelled to jesus that she didn't deserve to live you and i aren't mental health experts but morty i'm guessing if you hear stuff like vacant look and then yelling to jesus what might that you think something's going on yeah yeah she wasn't doing too well no and then there was a disturbing incident where Trevor's young niece, uh, Jalisha, told people that Trevor had shaken her awake and been like, there's an armed man outside our room. So the niece was staying with them and she's like, yeah, there's an armed man. It was not true. Not true at all. Okay. So something's going on. Terribly but, wrong. But because she was generally respectful and quiet, people kind of just let her... I don't like that at all. It's just, oh, well, she's not causing any inconvenience for us, so fuck it. Yeah. Money was tight in the family, but, you know, generally speaking, there was one son, four daughters, and everyone was fed and dressed. So mm. poor but not neglected. Not destitute. And then one December, the then 16-year-old Trevor, when she was taking her shift at the Whistle Stop Cafe, so she stopped coming to work. She stopped coming to school. She disappeared. And then classmates said, and nobody knew where she went. Mm. Yeah, I'm filling you with hope for this story. Aren't I? Oh, yeah. What happened was Trevor had gone to the local police station and said her father had raped her, which had resulted in her being removed from her family immediately, which, mm-hmm. you know, that's good. Placed with a foster family back in the place of her birth, which was Wichita Falls. Being a small town, it didn't take long in Electra for the rumour to basically spread that that's what had happened, that she'd last been seen at the police station and she'd said that her father had raped her. She'd also said that her mother had only laughed upon finding out. Maud's face is, it's a face. Just pure contempt. It's not good. Um, That makes me so angry. Yeah. Okay. So, sorry, <laughs> take a break. <laughs> a police officer had called child welfare. So the social worker had removed Treva and there'd been a temporary emergency protection order on Treva so her parents couldn't see her. And when it came to court, 
Treva's parents, Carl and Patsy, insisted it was all a lie. And Treva's sisters gave affidavits professing their father's innocence. I'm not, I mean, obviously, like, I, I do know that judicial flaws are a thing, but it just, mm. it seems like a bad idea to be, because those girls aren't necessarily going to be able to be oh. totally candid because, you know, they still have to live in that house. Yeah. So I'll just say straight up now, like, it's one of those things. Legally, Carl never did anything. So that's been the court's decision. And I guess I can't really say as to whether he did. As it legally stands, he never did anything. The sisters and the mother assumably don't believe that he did. And I'll get a bit more into it later and you'll sort of see. There's a bit more of the story and it's it's bad. I'm sorry. (laughs) Starting you off fresh, you know. Carl testified if anyone had raped his daughter... It would have been one of the members of the Pentecostal church that she was always hanging out at. The Pentecostal is the one that are like, I'm speaking in tongues. I don't know my breeds of religion. I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure they're in like big tents and they get like the spirit of the Lord in them and just start. Jazz hands? (laughs) (laughs) No, they get. Oh, they like, they they, they dance. They feel. They they feel. Well, that sounds kind of nice. But they, like, fall on the ground and, like, have seizures oh, and stuff. Oh, okay, that's nice. I was thinking more, like, um, you know, dancing at church sort of thing. And they claim to be able to lay hands upon someone. And If you're Pentecostal, Lord. let us know. <laughs> I wasn't raised religious, so I'm ignorant in all, all everything. I used to do Christian puppet shows. That's amazing. I, I had these puppets that kind of looked like... um. They kind of look like Grover from <laughs> Sesame Street, like the little head and the long neck. And I made them do like little skits about talking to God when you feel alone. I'm losing my shit over <laughs> And like I had one, he was in a, the puppet was in a cage and the cage was cigarettes and alcohol. <laughs> and then another puppet was God that came and let him out of the cage. Coming out of my cage and I've been doing just and fine. I, like, I, I laugh about it, but I I had, I used to travel to towns and, you know, hang I out with this so like, much. other. And the weird thing was is that I never really believed in God. I was just, I like hanging out with these people and I feel like a better I'm person. I'm an artist. <laughs> yeah, like, like I definitely wasn't like homophobic or anything like that. It was more just... God, I hope not. Praise the Lord. We have so much reconsidering to do in our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was enjoyable. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is going to be a long episode. We're still like side things. Oh, well. Yeah, no, don't don't ever stop with the side things, babe. <laughs> okay. You'll get, so. you'll get more updates on when I remember other plot lines of the puppet shows as the podcast. As appropriate. In subsequent episodes. Beautiful. The church members in retaliation, no, that's probably not the right word, in response, they said that in the weeks leading up to her rape allegation, Treva had told them she was scared of being at her home. She'd been sleeping out at night to sleep in the house next door to the church. And sometimes they found her asleep on the pews. And they'd only wanted to help somebody who was a young, clearly distressed person going through some stuff. In Wichita Falls, her foster mother... Sharon Gentry said she often found Trevor at night curled in a fetal position in the corner of her bedroom, 
Sometimes she'd find her banging her head against the wall, saying things in her sleep like, please don't hurt me, I'll be a good girl. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's all right, we just got to get through this section. We can start getting a little, little, uh bit of fun aside. Okay. <laughs> Be strong. <laughs> Be strong for Mother Clarence. Uh, so Gentry, the foster mother, was touched by how gentle Treva was around the house. She was very polite, helpful, soft-spoken. She began attending Wichita Falls High, where she developed a, like a positive reputation as a, a, you know, a nice Nice girl, nice wholesome girl. She regularly read her Bible. She wrote poetry. This is one of her poems here, I'm going to say. So, raining tears flowing down my face, yours forever, a lost cause. No one cares or see you fall. No one hears you when you call. So, there's something. She's not not a happy camper, to put it lightly. So, as the weeks passed, however... Treva started to leave disturbing notes on the ironing board, usually, for her foster mum. One morning, she told Gentry she'd been dreaming about shooting herself. She also recounted a story about when she was back in Electra that she'd been kidnapped, blindfolded, and taken by members of a satanic cult to a abandoned oil field. When she was there, she was tied to a stake. She said people in black robes danced and then they slit the throats of black cats and dogs and they all drank their blood. Okay. So that's a story she told her foster mum. You could start to see that maybe there's some cracks in the the story. Yeah. Plausible deniability could, could have happened. Yeah. But we'll see. In 1986... Treva went to see her counsellor at the high school and she said very calmly that she was going to jump off a building to kill herself. So police officers came, handcuffed her, took her to the Wichita Falls State Hospital. Because that's really good for your mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Being treated like a criminal. She was mostly a loner. She was often seen crying. She wasn't eating well. Doctors gave her various tests. She was prescribed Xanax and Trilophon. So the Xanax is for anxiety. The Trilophon is what was called thought disorders. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thought disorders. And uh, Trofrenil, uh, which is an antidepressant. Uh, she was in weekly group therapy sessions, but she wasn't a huge talker or contributor in them. She did write a couple of letters uh, to her old foster mum and a boy who had once taken her her to a date. And she said things like, I feel like a living robot. I walk when they say walk. I sit when they say sit. I do everything they say because I have to. I can't take it anymore. I have to die. Oh, no. So. What were 1986 antidepressants like? Because, like, the one, the ones nowadays... Even now they can knock they, you about a bit. They will fully cook your your brain. Like... So... And that's... that's Disclaimer, not saying that we're not anti-medication oh no, like, at yeah, all. I'm pro. Like, I take antidepressants and it's... I mean, it's it's not ideal, but it's well. Like. But, yeah, so 
I don't know what was going on there. Can't speak for the the 80s Mm. (laughs) pharmaceuticals. Yeah, so the therapists were sort of like, what is going on there? Uh, The staffers arranged for her to meet with her parents. They'd been coming to the hospital asking to see her. Um, The district attorney uh, eventually dismissed the sexual assault charges against Carl, saying there was no evidence to prosecute. Mm-hmm. So when Carl and Patsy, so that's the parents, uh, came in, they were with a social worker and a therapist and Trevor, obviously, and the parents asked her basically to admit she was lying about the rape. Uh, Trevor got up from her chair and basically said they were liars, that they didn't love her, and she had nothing more to say to them, and she wanted to go to her room. So the therapist called her a liar. No, the parents. Oh, Oh, sorry. She called. They, Carl and Patsy, the parents, asked her to admit she was lying. And then Treva herself said that her parents were liars. They didn't love her. And she had nothing more to say to them. Okay. She wanted to go back to her room. So I'd say that, yeah, probably the social workers and the therapists don't believe her. Because I don't, I don't feel like you'd put a kid in that situation if you believed. 1986. General sort of attitudes are just yeah i'm suspicious five months later the doctor's therapist declared she was no longer suicidal and they said she that her biggest issue was that she was unpredictable and she was uh, taken out of the uh, state hospital okay okay and once again i'm gonna ask you to have a deep breath before this revelation so Whilst whilst Carl, her father, was cleared by the courts of molesting his daughter, it is recognised officially and everything that Treva, alongside her sisters, Carleen, Kim and Sue, were all molested by their uncle, uh, her father's brother. So his name was Billy Ray. He was a Vietnam vet. He was a heavy drinker. Uh, divorced, and he was a frequent visitor to the house. I, do, I don't have comment. I'm just going to... That's okay. <laughs> to, to sit in this. That's fair enough. Um, Treva was the youngest girl and considered his favourite. He'd ask the girls often if they wanted to go to the store with him. Um, his brother adored him, so their father adored Billy Ray and would be like, let Billy Ray buy you something nice at the store. So Carleen, one of the older sisters, later said, we didn't know what to do. We were just children, uneducated small town girls. I know you're not going to understand it, but those times were different. We were too scared to say anything because we thought people would make us feel ashamed and tell us that it was our fault. We tried to let Mama and Daddy know what he was doing. At least we thought we had, but we didn't come out and say anything outright because Billy had told us if we ever did, he'd have mama and daddy killed and then he'd have us all to himself what were we supposed to do we thought and i know this sounds so terrible that this is the way things worked this is how everyone lived oh god so even as they got older Trevor's sisters carleen kim and sue still didn't talk about this till much much later mm. so i don't know at the time with the therapist and everything if they were aware of this the 
sisters did everything to keep their distance from their uncle. They worked double shifts at their jobs. Sue once ran away uh, and she'd been too scared to tell her parents why she'd left. Yeah. All three of the sisters got married as teenagers so they didn't have to live in that home. So, and that meant Truva was left alone. Okay. Um, when Sue, her sister, came back to the house one day, she saw Truva sitting on Billy Ray's lap. His hips were squirming back and forth. And Sue was torn between the desire to race forward and just grab her sister and the fear she had of her uncle. When Carlene was 16 and she was already married... She asked her sister, Trevor, who was then 10, if she needed help with Billy Ray. And Trevor just said that she liked Billy Ray's present, uh, presence. So she didn't really understand, I would say. Yeah. yeah. So when Trevor was 16 and had accused her father of rape, her sisters basically just assumed she'd gotten to the point where she wanted to escape the home and she knew that child welfare would get her out of there if she accused her father. So that's kind of what they had put the whole thing down to. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so after the hospital, Treva went to Lena Pope Home for Troubled Girls in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, while at Lena Pope, basically they wanted her to make friends and get better at interpersonal relationships. Okay. She was quite distant from her family still. She she did send letters every now and then, but I guess I don't really blame her. No. For, she's clearly not happy with them for whatever reasons. She was eventually discharged in 1986 and... <laughs> No one was really sure what to do with her. Treva begged the social workers not to let her go back to her parents. And Carl and Patsy, her parents, didn't object to that. They didn't want her back until she recanted her rape story about her father. Okay. So, yeah. So eventually she was enrolled at nearby Arlington Heights High School to finish her senior year. In June 1987, Treva graduated high school. She just turned 18, so she could no longer be under state juvenile protection laws, money, all those sorts of things, so she was completely on her own. Mm-hmm. When her counsellors had asked what she would do next, she said she wanted to go to Bible college because that didn't require um, an SAT test. And she said, all I want to be, uh, all I want is to be and to feel normal. And... She wrote to one of her social workers, I want to live life, but I want to be normal. Most of all, I want to live a normal life. Mm-hmm. She did go back to Electra for a couple of days uh, and she visited her three older sisters, Carlene, Kim and Sue. And Carlene had said to her, Treva, honey, what you said about daddy is breaking his heart. You need to go apologize. And Treva just didn't say anything. Yeah. So the sisters sort of assumed that she would just handle her trauma by squishy squashing it down yeah. like they had done. And But when she'd visited them after she'd become 18 and she's about to go out into the real world, they sort of began to wonder if her escape had just come too late. 
Yeah. Because she started to tell them these crazy stories. Okay. She told Kim the story about being kidnapped by the uh, satanic cult. And she was like, Treva, why are you talking like that? Yeah. And Kim said her sister had a glazed look in her eyes and she wasn't really listening. So her sisters could see she was in trouble. Whenever I hear someone making these claims about like having experience with the satanic temple, it's always like the thing that makes me really listen to it is that it's always the same sort of imagery. Like it's always some form of blood sacrifice, black robes, blah, blah, blah. So it's sort of, it does seem like something that she saw on TV. Yeah. And it's like the eighties, there was all that satanic panic and Marilyn Manson and, oh, he was probably more nineties, but you know, there was, there was stuff. Treva sadly didn't end up going to college. She moved to Arlington, Texas in 1987 She rented her own apartment and worked as a hotel maid. Mm. She called Sharon Gentry, her former foster mum, at one point, basically said that she was working, she had an apartment. Later she called again and said she was living on the streets and then she just disappeared. And if you can believe it, this was where the story starts to get weird. Okay. So (laughs) this was just a a little bit of um, background, really. So, Morty. Yeah. How do you feel about the high school experience? Not good, although I recognise in my great age that a lot of it was my own doing. <laughs> like, a lot. I I can't imagine teenage, when you speak of yourself in the past or whatever, you're like, yeah, I was a bitch. And I'm, How? No, no, like, I wasn't a bitch. I just, I had... You're my marshmallow friend. <laughs> I had some weird... I guess you'd call it sort of escapist, sort of disassociative behaviours where I sort of wouldn't. I had a lot of, like, I try, I tested, test ran a lot of different personalities and I think people were like, that's, that's what high school's for, yeah. But I, I think, I think I committed to them <laughs> too well. So I think a lot of people were like, you're really fucking weird and I don't want to talk to you. And I'm like, looking back, I'm like, fair call. <laughs> but yeah, so how would you feel about doing high school again voluntarily? Would I have to be back in my teenage body? No, not for this this scenario. Then I probably would do it again because I would try to get a bit better ATAR <laughs> and, like, not do – not fuck around at uni and, like, actually just, like, get my degree in three years and stuff like that instead of – That's sounding very mature of you and I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's there's not much point I find dwelling on it because, you know – circumstances are what they are and you know you can only do your best at the time sort of thing so treva had disappeared she'd been kind of you know functioning as an adult Mm. and in 1993 when she would have been about 22 years old she went by keely t thronebird smith and keely smith and passed herself off as a teenager in corvallis oregon what the fuck so she'd been staying with a family she'd met at a church she'd falsely reported to the Corvallis police that she had been raped by her father she also claimed as a police officer in Oregon and eventually she was caught basically and when she was caught she eventually disappeared the next summer she surfaced in Portland 
And she told the police, again, that she was on the run from her father. This time she said her father was a Portland police officer. And then there was an investigation that had begun. And once again, she disappeared. Like, how do they know that it was her? I I don't know the specific circumstances. You're going to find this happen a lot. Okay. So there's a million ways, I guess, really, to to skin a cat, so to speak. (laughs) So guess what Trevor did next? I don't know. Look, this is going to be a reoccurring theme. She appeared in the town of... Maud, this looks vaguely French, help me. Coeur d'Alene? Coeur d'Alene? So is it C-O... C-O-E-U-R. Cour. Cour? And then D apostrophe. Sorry, Cur. Yeah, Cur. Anyway, I'm just going to say Idaho. She rocked up. They found her in Idaho. And she told her name, uh, told the police her name was Cara Leanna Davis. She said her mother had been murdered and her police officer father had been a member of a satanic cult who had repeatedly raped her. And then two months later, she again left. Again with the Satan. Yeah, it's a thing. Later that year, she arrived in Plano? Plano? Plano. Plano. Texas. Dallas, yeah, Dallas. Dallas, Texas. (laughs) And she told officers and social workers her name was Cara Williams. She also told them she was 16 years old and she had been born and raised in a satanic cult where she had been taught her destiny was to honour the devil and then die in a lake of fire. She told them most, if not all, of the kids that she'd been peers with had been stabbed to death and that her own mother had been murdered by her father. And her father had been the cult leader, who also happened to be a police officer in Holyville, Coleyville, another Dallas suburb. She'd also said at bedtime she was made to chant prayers to Satan. It's almost like there was a grain of truth that existed a long time ago when she was a kid. Like, you know how, like, when oysters get, like, a, a grain and it they turns just... turns into a pearl? <laughs> yeah, but, like, they, they but put, it was like, not a pearl. layer upon layer of yeah. on it and then... Except, yeah, instead of, like, a pearl... It's Satan. It's a nightmare. (laughs) Yes. That's a beautiful image. (laughs) People felt sorry for this kid. So one detective was so determined to discover the person who had harmed Kara, Hmm. a.k.a. Treva, that she drove to the town that she said and basically asked the police uh, chief there if there would be any offers there willing to look into uh, satanic activities. A volunteer for a social work agency had taken Kara to the outside world, uh, like took her shopping, uh, took her to a theme park. She'd been shuttled across like a bunch of different places and they just wanted her to find a place where where she would feel safe. Hmm. And then at one shelter, she accused a male staffer of assaulting her. So she's moved again and enrolled in a new high school. In 1995 alone... Kara attended high schools in Sadler, Sherman, and Dallas. She always joined the tennis team. The child protective services worker, Susan Arnold, uh, who'd been supervising Kara, <laughs> Kara's case, yeah. bought her a tennis racket. But in September 1995, she was caught out when Suzanne Arnold received a call from a staffer at the residential home where... Trevor had been staying and the staffer had originally been from Electra said Susan 
I think Kara is actually a 26-year-old woman named Treva Throneberry. So <laughs> she got caught out. Imagine that. Imagine being that, that caseworker and just going into work and just being like another day on the front lines of human indecency and then it's just like, oh, fuck. Like, Yeah, and they thought this girl was murdered. The mm. people in her hometown, small town, they assumed she was dead or something yeah. because she'd just disappeared. Days later, Kara slash Treva was confronted with records that proved that she was Treva. She protested it so much that all the people, well, basically all the people that were there believed, she believed what she was saying. Mm. So there was a court hearing and after which Susan Arnold, the social worker, had handed her a quarter, gave her some phone numbers for a bunch of places like the state's mental health office and a homeless shelter and said, please get some help. And it really, it's kind of really sad because obviously there's a gap in the system regardless. Yeah, she's, she's got some compulsive lying and stuff going on and identity things going on, but you can tell... It's not coming from a place of being malicious. Like, there is something... She needs help. She's not trying to get, like, money from it. It's just... If you wanted money, you wouldn't pretend to be a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the Satan cults, you might be able to go on, like, Dr. Phil or something. (laughs) What's the 80s equivalent? Jenny Jones? Yeah, Jenny Jones. Was Jenny Jones in the 90s? I don't know. Was Oprah around in the 80s? I think she was still maybe doing local stuff then. Mm. Yeah. Well... Diane Sawyer. <laughs> so they might have been into the into the Satan, mm. uh, but that's I still don't think you'd. I don't think that would be the long term play. Like I'm going to pretend I'm from a satanic cult and that that's just your retirement plan. <laughs> <laughs> she went off the radar for a bit, but then in June 1996, a 16 year old teenager named Emily Cara Williams arrived in Asheville, North Carolina. She told police officers she was on the run from a cult in Texas. Guess, <laughs> guess who that was? <laughs> when she would have been about 25, Treva moved on to Altoona, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Again, she pretended to be a teenager. She said her name was Stephanie Danielle Lewis, that she was 16. After three weeks of investigation, police found somebody that had known Treva back in Texas. Treva was arrested, charged had nine days in jail and was released. I swear to God, she just knows that as soon as you mention Satan, people just lose all their critical thinking faculties and they just believe whatever she says. I don't know. I don't know how with it she is. It's really hard like yeah. without knowing her. Like People were pretty convinced. So she must have either been convinced herself or must have been very manipulative. Yeah. But I think it's more likely that... I, I don't think she's necessarily manipulative. Like She's just... She's not well. No. Yeah. So a social worker had found a reference to the social worker, Susan Arnold, in the book. So people checked all the records, found out she was Treva Throneberry, and that's how she got caught that time. A social worker called Carl and Patsy her parents. Her dad had said, hi, baby, it's your daddy. Treva had said, you sound like an awful nice man, and I wish you were my father, but you're not. And her mum had replied, honey, you'll be Treva Throneberry until the day you die. And Treva had said, oh no, you've got me mixed up with someone else, but someday I may just get that way to see you. 
And then she was, yeah, released from jail on the road. She made appearances in Louisiana, New Jersey, Ohio. She's basically a cryptid at this point. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. So she'd show up at youth hostels and the like, carrying some luggage. She had a teddy bear, Bible, flute, sheet music. And this is the home stretch now. In 1997, Treva went by the identity of a 17-year-old named Brianna Stewart in Portland, Oregon. She must have looked really young. Because, like, I'm, I'm 28 and there's no way I could pass myself off as a teenager. I was going to ask you that. Like, so when she did this one in 1997, she was about – she was 28-ish. So, yeah, she was roughly – she was very close to our age. Do you think we could pass as teens? You've said no for you, yourself. You could. Because I'm a midget? No, but you just have like a soft, sweet face, whereas I have... (laughs) You've been hardened by the ways of the world. I just, I have, I have quite stern... What about a Hollywood teenager? They have different standards for them. You know when they have like the 30-year-olds playing like 15-year-olds and you're like, sure. They tend to be very beautiful 30-year-olds though. (gasps) You're a very beautiful... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, yeah, I, I just, I've looked 26 since I was about... 15 yeah so it's kind of like i will show you some pictures of treva at some point point when she was a teenager i'd Mm. say she looked quite old in the face if that makes sense like she's kind of got like a she's quite long yeah long in the face but like she looked mature when she was like 15 but like she kind of stayed looking that same same level if that makes sense i remember once i got i was going into a bar and I got asked for ID and I forgot that it was – I thought it was if you look under 18 mm. rather than under 25. And I was just like, what 17-year-olds have you ever met that, <laughs> that have, like, crow's feet? <laughs> <laughs> and then I realised it's like, no, it's just anyone between the ages of 20 and 30. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think if I ever had – I've never, like, had a job where I've had to ID people for, you know, cigarettes or alcohol or whatever, but I would definitely err on the side of caution. Oh, yeah. Because um, there are actually some girls in my high school that got to do, like, the stings. Like, they got to go around because <laughs> somebody's somebody's dad was, like, a cop or whatever, and they got paid <clears throat> to, like, go into the things and be like, can I have some cigarettes? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. And they'd be like, you're under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> hey there, mister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh dearie yeah i don't know i really think a lot of it's contextual too like say if i put on a school uniform had my makeup like not full on or whatever like i think makeup can make you look older or younger i guess in some cases but generally older if it's heavy since i started wearing glasses i feel i look and i think that's maybe why i put off getting them for so long even though i really badly needed them because i feel like i i definitely look like I'm not super young, which, <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> Get some bright-ass pink ones. Yeah. <laughs> the worst thing I've ever seen like, in a movie, right, with, like, casting and stuff, I cannot remember what... But it's like a... It's one of those killer clown movies. Yeah. So the actress was already old to be playing a teenager, but yeah. then in the flashbacks they had that were meant to be set 10 years ago, they it had the same, the same actress, <laughs> but they put her... <laughs> This is some low budget shit, by the way. And they just put her in pigtails and a onesie. And it was the worst thing I've ever seen. I'll have to look it up. Like, it's, I'm talking some very, 
not B grade, Z grade horror movie. But yeah, that's literally, so she was already probably 25. They got her to play a 15 year old. Here's this flashback from 10 years ago and just little piggy tails and a onesie. It was bullshit. <laughs> that's, prob- that's probably someone's secret fetish. Oh no, no. <laughs> oh no. Oh. <coughs> I killed her. It's God punishing me. So, again, we need to have a quick geography lesson because this is all taking place in Vancouver, Washington. As opposed to Vancouver, British Columbia. Yes. So it's so ingrained in people. Vancouver, Canada. Like, literally articles were saying, like, oh, she made it all the way to Canada. Like, in her her fuckery. She was propelled by... The fear of Satan just (laughs) over the border. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm a professional academic, so I didn't make this mistake. I looked into it. (laughs) You are. You are a professional academic. Oh, shucks. So when she was in Vancouver, Washington, she accused 47-year-old security guard Charles Blankenship of rape. He pled guilty to having sex with a minor, was sentenced to 50 years in jail. Even though she wasn't a minor. Well, they didn't know at the time, obviously, when they did that. So after her fraud was exposed, he got his thing expunged. But basically, it does seem... I don't know whether he genuinely believed she was a teenager at the time or whatever. In which case, probably shouldn't have had sex with her anyway. But But also, she shouldn't be pretending to be a teenager. Yeah, there's... There is levels to the fuckery. Uh, this is so, this I'm is so, so sorry. Her dad had said of the situation, she's just going cross country, using different names, getting welfare. So as we said, she's in Vancouver, Washington. She started, she was posing as initially a 16-year-old at Evergreen High School, which is funny because Evergreen, like, it's a bit on the nose, Treva. Like, go for it. So this is between the ages of 27 and 31. She spent five years there. Fuck. And I'm now going to share a picture of this time. And the first thing I want to say about it is her outfit reminds me of being, like, minions. And I hate minions. To be quite honest, if I saw her looking like that and someone said, this person's a 17-year-old, I would probably buy it. Yeah, yeah. And that's not even, like... Yeah. But do you see what I mean? Like, she's always had that face. So, yeah. like, even when she was genuinely 15, that's, like, what her face looked like. Yeah. So it's kind of... It's a mature face, but, like, I don't think it's she kind She kind of looks like she's maybe 18 and she's off to join the Peace Corps in Africa <laughs> or something. Like. Yeah, yeah. She'd started attending services at... The Glad Tidings Church. She'd met a young couple. They took her into their into their home because they heard her speak at church, probably about you know her cults and everything. And they took her to school the next morning and got her enrolled in the school. Okay. When asked about her past, so this is one of the the school counselors, Treva slash Brianna, had told Greg the school counsellor, that she'd been raised outside of Mobile, Alabama with her mother and her stepfather, who was Navajo and a sheriff's deputy. So Brianna had said when she was a child, her mother had been murdered and then she'd live with her stepfather. And then at about 13, she'd run away because 
her mother had told her her real father lived somewhere in the northwest. So that's why she'd come there to look for clues. Okay. The counsellor was like, wow, this is, this is wild. But like, I mean, and he didn't, didn't smell bullshit at any no, point. Later said, like in, when he was doing all the court stuff, like he seemed embarrassed that he'd been taken in. Yeah. He'd asked about her education. She had said she'd only ever been homeschooled and she said she'd be good. So she'd be a good student. She said, I just want to be a normal teenager like everyone else. So that's, that's come. She mentioned uh, earlier on in the story, she, you mentioned that she said something about, I just want to be normal. Yeah, it's a big preoccupation of hers. Normal, good girl. Like, that's her things too. Like, she wants to be good. She says a lot. Yeah. There's some, to quote last week, a rye in the scone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she just seemed really happy to have this chance to be at Evergreen High. She dutifully went, caught the bus to school, she was a pretty average student. She wasn't bad, but um, she struggled with maths. She did well in English. I get so confused about this, right? Because they had her GPA, yeah. and GPAs mean nothing to me. Like yeah. I just get so confused. So she had a 2.83 grade point average. Mm-hmm. And American ones are different to ours. It's, I think it's out of four. Yeah, theirs? Okay, because yeah. ours at the local... is out of seven. Okay, yeah. I was going to say ours is out of... Yeah, so, so kind of average but not like bad average uh she also got a d in in drama class so she got this d in drama class and it like it is kind of ironic because clearly clearly she was a good enough actor to pull this whole thing off (laughs) there's a couple of different stories because she was here for five years doing this thing so it's like your normal high school buddy that you're chilling around with yeah yeah so she had a classmate named cheyenne and she'd ask Brianna if she'd like to go to the mall with her and some other girls from school. People were generally like, oh, this poor girl, all this bad stuff's happened to her. And so they were generally kind of nice to her from all accounts. Mm-hmm. So on the way there, um, Cheyenne had put some, pumped some tunes in the car and a couple of the other girls in the car had started dancing. Brianna tried to dance, but she was kind of like jerky. Like it was just very alien to her. Yeah. And like to be fair, I don't think that's necessarily indicative of her age because I can't, I can't groove to the tunes. <laughs> this is the third deep breath I'm going to need you to take in this story. Okay, I'm, I'm ready. You feel oxygenated. Yeah. I'm so uncomfortable about this. So, Trevor then dated teenager, genuine teenager, Kenny Dunn for a year and a half. And I now want to show you a picture of them together. No. This poor boy, this sandy-haired, wholesome boy. Oh, please tell me they didn't have sex. I don't know. I really hope not. Yeah, he went to church and stuff, so hopefully they were saving it. Because that, I feel like that would fuck with him developmentally. What? Did she ever go to the doctor? Well, okay, there is a thing that's coming up okay. that kind of links into that. So, because sure, like I, I'm not known, known, knowledgeable in like medicine, but surely there would be differences between a 17 year old's body and a 32 year old's body. Yeah, well, she's 28, but oh, you know, okay. cl- close enough. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I mean, yeah, she was kind of like people sort of said like she was more developed than like the average. Teenage girl, especially when she was like 15, like she had quite, you know, she had hips and 
all those things. So Ken, dear sweet Ken, he was really some. He was really smitten. He said she was unlike any other girl he'd ever known. She had a kind of southern accent, and he he really liked that. And you know they were swapping flirtatious notes. And they went on dates in his uh, his car, which was brown and known as the Turd Tank. <laughs> oh, that's such a teenage boy thing. It is. And he, he attended services with, with her at the Glad Tidings Church. So I really hope that meant they weren't having sex. Yeah. I need to keep it that way to, like, hold my sanity. Yeah. Kenny was amazed at the amount of scripture <laughs> That she knew. Because she's got a head start. Sorry. Sorry, I'm being mean now. Uh, He'd excitedly been to like his parents like, she must have studied the Bible for years. So initially she hadn't told him much about her past. But then one day they were having a date in the food court. Brianna said she'd watch her stepfather stab her mother to death. That her father had made tapes of himself as well as his friends, sexually assaulting her, which he'd sold. She said she'd been pregnant at around early puberty and that she'd been pushed down the stairs to be made to miscarry. She said she went to the police station at the time and no one had believed her and that they'd called her stepfather to pick her up, which is why she had fled. Fuck. Yeah, so Ken was like, Here was this beautiful girl who had been forced to endure unimaginable atrocities. And here she was at Evergreen wanting to make something of herself in life. I wanted to help. I wanted to make her happy. I wanted her to know someone cared for her. They went to the school Sadie Hawkins dance and that's where the the picture I showed you before. Uh. Shania Twain's You're Still the One (laughs) was playing. They locked eyes and he had said I love you. She had said, I love you too. And they'd kissed. He said, I was 16 and she was 16. It was the perfect teenage romance. I couldn't imagine anything that could go wrong. Man, stay away from the children, please. I know. I know. If I had a handkerchief, I would be like patting my forehead right now. Like, She said she wanted to be a lawyer advocating for children. So she was kind of, you know, reading law books in the library. She'd written a story in English class called Betrayed about a character named Jessica. It was me who had conducted a DNA test to prove that she was abducted as a child. Now, Treva slash Brianna told everyone how much she needed a social security number that identified her as Brianna Stewart, because she'd be able to get a job, go to college, do all those normal things. Yeah. But the government would not issue her one unless she could find some evidence she existed. Yeah. People were trying to help her. She was hazy about it, but people believed she suffered from amnesia or some sort of PTSD stress thing that had fried her memory. Yeah. She had said she wasn't sure exactly what her name was, because her stepfather had started calling her Brianna, which he had said meant bright eyes in Navajo, but she wasn't sure about that. 
I hate that she put like these Navajo <sighs> elements in it. Like it's so corny. It's so uncomfortable. I just It's like she's gotten one of those pony club books that I used to read from Scholastic and taken all of the tropes and just made them a hundred percent darker. Yeah. So she told a reporter in the weekly Portland newspaper in nineteen ninety nine, I may not know who I was before I was three. But I do know who I am now. People were really trying to help her, like, you know, social workers and stuff. And, like, all that staff time to, like, helping. Because she'd said her um, stepfather had been Navajo, people from Indian Health Services had been looking. Why is it called Indian Health Services? That's also a side note. Because it's the 90s. Yeah, okay. Anyway, that staffer had scoured like for hours, national databases of missing children. He'd gotten a blood sample from her trying to get DNA. There was at one time this theory that she might have been the victim of an unsolved kidnapping in Salt Lake City. They went there to try and find out if she was this girl that went missing in 1983. I really hate when people do shit like this and it results in people having like false hope. Like oh, that. right. Because if it was your daughter that got kidnapped and then they were like, oh, we may have found her and then you yeah yeah that's not good Uh, a police officer had taken her around daphne alabama to like drive her around to see if she'd seen anything that would jog her memory she said she recognized a table at mcdonald's you'd asked before about medical stuff yeah so here's where we start to unravel okay okay she went to the dentist Oh, no. So, look, body stuff, like, I guess maybe is a bit more debatable. Unless you're having, like, a full... But teeth? We'll dob you the fuck in. He noticed that Brianna had extracted wisdom teeth and there were scars, which would be very unusual for a 16-year-old. I have my wisdom teeth. I mean, I do, but they're my molars. Yeah. Because I was born with no enamel on my back teeth. So they yeeted them the fuck out and they they just let my wisdom teeth become my back molars. Yank. Fling. Yes, exactly. That's how it would happen. The social worker was like, oh, oh. <laughs> and Brianna slash Trevor wrote a five-page single-spaced letter criticizing this dentist and anyone who doubted her story. Brianna went to her boyfriend, Ken, and told the story about the dentist while they were cruising around in the turd tank. Hmm. <laughs> and he kind of found himself thinking, maybe could there be some truth? On, like, you don't exactly know how old you are. Like, could, could you be older? And she went off. She was like, how dare you say, uh, how dare you think I'm not 16? How dare you even ask me that? How can you say, even say you love me? He was a bit rattled. But to show how much he still loved her, he bought her for Christmas this lovely sterling silver ring. And on the inside of it, it was engraved with her favourite line from the then new Romeo and Juliet movie featuring Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, I love that movie. Which said, I love thee. So he got a ring. This wholesome good boy. Again, beginning to unravel. She was staying with the Gambetta family whose son was good friends with her boyfriend, Ken. 
they'd been treating her like a daughter. She had the spare room. She was allowed to put her tennis posters up on the wall. They gave her an allowance of $10 a week. But then one day in 1999, she said the father of the household had been spying on her, that there'd been cameras in the light fixtures in her room, and that he'd been watching her. This is the point at which I, I'm sort of like, I felt sympathetic and I felt really bad for her. And now I'm just like... Well, especially like these are presumably really nice people that have taken her in. Like that's a lot. And then, yeah. and yeah, look, this is the point where Ken, the boyfriend, was like, yeah, n- no. Like I know these, they're good family friends. Yeah. No. And he said to one of his friends, my God, what if Brianna made everything up? Brianna, Stuart, or Trevor graduated from Evergreen High School, class of 2000. And how old is she? So 1969. So she's, what, 31 at this point. She then enrolled in Clark College. So college, we've got some growth. Mm -hmm. It's the first time she's made it. Meanwhile, back on the ranch, a.k.a. (laughs) back with her uh, family, they'd assume she was dead. Her sister said, we never really did try too hard to look for her. It's not that we didn't want to see her, but we figured she wanted to be away to get a fresh start. At least that's what we hoped she was doing. In 1993, there was a rumour in Electra that Trevor died in a fire at a compound near Waco. So Sharon Gentry, that was her foster mum from earlier, had sent her dental records to the authorities to see if one of the burn bodies might be her. At the graduation party, Ken Dunn had approached Brianna. So they'd broken up because of what the, the hidden camera thing. <sighs> and he still, he, look, he still loved her. He was like, this is messed up. And, but, and that's kind of why they'd broken up. But he still loved her. And he had applied for a job at Disney World. And she had enrolled in a, a community college that would allow her to go in. She had a scholarship and she didn't need a social security number to do it. Yeah. And he'd said, you're going to do great, Brianna. And I made it. She worked as a volunteer answering phones. But most of her free time was devoted to getting a social security number. She wrote a six-page letter to the governor of Washington asking for help. She then also enlisted the services of two lawyers mm. and neither of them knew what the other one was doing. Okay. But one of the attorneys had sued the state to force Vital Records Office to issue her a birth certificate. The other attorney in Portland had asked the federal government directly to issue her a social security number. Mm. However, before he put this through, he got her to submit a fingerprint test just to prove beyond reasonably doubt she was not anyone else. Okay. Now, remember, she has a criminal record. Yeah. So, look, it was they ended up setting a date f- to petition for the, the birth certificate. The state uh, deputy attorney general was going to let it happen. Yeah. All she had to do was go to court in March 2001. She was about to officially become Brianna Stewart. However... A week before, she was arrested. She, it was revealed she was actually a 31-year-old woman who had fraudulently received free foster care, free public education, all those things. So she's up on a bunch of charges. 
Brianna said there has to be a mistake. She said there's no way her fingerprints could match this, you know, Trevor Throneberry. Yeah. Ken Dunn, her ex-boyfriend. His mother called him at Disney World with the news. Oh, no. He nearly dropped the phone. He said, Mum, I went to homecoming with a woman 12 years older than me. And everyone at the school was like, holy shit. Can you imagine if that happened in your year at school? Oh, my God. And they started to question everything. They looked back at everything. They were like, well, was she deliberately bad in drama class? Because she received a D, but, like, clearly she's not terrible. Well, I mean, it it makes – I think it it begs the question if she's drawing the distinction between reality and fantasy. Because, I mean, like, actors know they're acting. Yeah, that's true. It's really – I really don't know. Like, I think I err on the side that she probably does believe to some level her stuff. She also lost tennis matches against girls half her age, which I think I would too, to be honest. So I don't hold too much of that one. And they thought, some of them thought it was basically hilarious that she couldn't pass algebra despite going to high school for 15 years. And there's a quote here from one of her classmates that says, it just goes to show you how algebra can really suck. Oh, no. <laughs> and then that security officer got acquitted because his records had been cleared because no minor had been involved. But he apparently thought there was, so yeah. he might still be a bit guilty there. There's a big court case. Most citizens seem to be on the side of getting her psychiatric help rather than sending her to prison. One uh, person wrote in saying they'd be spending far more taxpayer money through the legal system than through Thronberg's uh, relatively harmless scam. No. <laughs> no. There's a lot of sympathy for her, especially after her sisters had come around and revealed is about... There, is there any sympathy for the dad that she accused of, like, putting cameras, like... I'm sure there is. I mean, that's why her boyfriend broke up with her. Yeah. There was sympathy about, yeah, like her sisters came forward, said the thing about the the sexual abuse from their uncle. And there was, you know, the attorney, uh, the well, sorry, the attorney said if it was a con artist thing, she could have picked a far better ruse than wandering the country as a homeless youth because <laughs> yeah. why would you? Now, the greatest mystery at the end of this was basically why She'd been caught. She'd been caught numerous times, but she still wouldn't admit who she was. Her niece, Delisha, from earlier, Mm. she wrote her a letter being like, hi, and Trevor had written a letter back saying, dear Delisha Throneberry, I'm sorry to tell you this. I don't know who you are. How much she remembered and how much culpability she had was really, really, I mean, I guess still is interesting to psychiatrists, psychologists, mm. everyone. People really wanted to know what was up on her. She's a great, she's a great case study. Yeah. It sounds awkward to say. So some people thought that her abuse had been like a trauma and she just disconnected everything in her head and believed it because it was kind of those years were stolen from her. This was her way of getting them back. Mm. Some people had thought she might have had a, like a fugue state, speculated that she had multiple personality disorder. And then 
like people came forward that had known her earlier and said she really seemed to believe what she'd said she couldn't have gotten away with it for so long if she wasn't so convincing and the other thing that baffled people was that she had given her blood she'd given her fingerprints and certainly she'd be smart enough to know that they would have matched and that she'd been arrested she'd have to know that those things could be done Mm -hmm. 2001 as well dna is obviously a thing the tests matched her parents so, like, why would she do all of that? Pretty good quote here from Kenneth uh, Muscatel, who's a Seattle psychologist, mm-hmm. and he'd, he'd been a person hired by the court to examine her. He said, Here is a woman who invents stories to get the love and affection she had never known in her home, yet a woman so pro- profoundly disturbed that she ends up turning on the very people that are trying to help her, accusing them of abuse. Mm-hmm. So no one other than her niece, uh, Jalisha, had tried to contact her after the arrest. And it was just so, so, so much going on. This is another really weird story. So her sister had said, one of her sisters, Patsy, had said she'd been upset before that she turned the back on the family. Sorry, this is her mother, not her sister. Mm-hmm. Patsy, her mum. Yeah. And she believed that Truva hadn't forgotten about the family entirely because at the funeral of her own mother or Truva's grandmother in 1998, there was this elderly lady that no one knew sitting at the back wearing a faded dress. And Patsy noticed she was wearing a grey wig and granny glasses and (gasps) lots of pancake makeup. And she said, in my heart, I knew it was Truva. And that's just wild to me. Oh, my God. God. Yeah. And again, her sisters kind of like were on the wayside here. We thought that maybe it would be best to just let her continue pretending to believe she was a teenager. If she was living in a better place, then so be it. The sisters just sound so checked out like yeah. with everything they've said. Now, this is where we get really weird again okay. because she wanted to <clears throat> represent herself. <clears throat> and in order to represent herself, it basically mean she waived any chance she had of getting like her psychiatric help obviously if she's fit enough to represent herself then she can't go in with like the i'm crazy defense which it doesn't look like she wanted to do anyway because she's going for the angle no i i truly believe this and it was important for her to clear her name and then (laughs) the prosecutor had basically said she's graduated from high school at least twice like she's fit enough to stand it I think that's kind of bullshit. But yeah, once they couldn't prove her incompetent, it basically meant she was screwed mm-hmm. and that she was going to jail. Yeah. So the judge was completely like thrown out by this whole case. At one point he was like, hello, Miss Stewart, Miss Throne, Mary, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> when she was doing all the lawyery stuff because she was representing herself. She was just pissing off the opposition so much. So she'd be like, objection, relevance, <sighs> would beam at the judge. And the other side, Kinney, he's meant to be this really serious guy. He was clenching his fists and stuff. He was just not having it. And he was really adamant about saying, no, nah, no, nah, she she knew what she was doing. Yeah. They found a witness from a Vancouver convenience store that said Brianna had once come in to buy cigarettes and had showed an ID card with the name Trevor Throneberry. But the teenagers that she'd hung with really denied this because Brianna 
wasn't the type to smoke yeah. and no one could ever remember going to that store with her and she was a homebody. Mm. These parts are really, really sad. Sharon Gentry, her foster mum from all those years ago, she was asked to testify. She had these photos of of her and Treva and she'd put up the photos like, you know, in evidence and Treva because she's doing the cross-examination and everything. She said, this is Treva in these pictures. What was she like? It's just so sad. And Gentry had said she was a very polite young lady. She enjoyed church. She was always appropriate, very thankful. She apologized if she hurt my feelings. And at the end of it, Treva had said, thank you. That is just... It's a trip. I I can't imagine witnessing that and feeling anything other than just anger and it's, sadness. It's complicated. I still, like, I do feel really sympathetic for it because I do think she's... Yeah. Anyway, at the end of it, she wrote, I still say I am Brianna Rebecca Stewart. I don't pretend to be anyone else but me. Jury found her guilty pretty quick. Yeah. She was sentenced to three years in prison. And then the judge had said, there's no question in my mind, having spent as much time with her as I have, that she is of the opinion that she is Brianna Stewart. But basically it was too late. The judge wished he could send her to a state hospital for treatment, but the only legal option was prison. Yeah. Yeah. And then the problem with prison, she was there. There's limited mental health services. There's not really a lot of supervision for nonviolent people after their release. Mm. So... Ooh, she's just kind of put in, put out, and then with not a lot of help. So what of her now? Yeah. She hasn't done the high school thing again, but fairly recently, in 2016, she resurfaced under the alias of Brianna Kenzie and accused a local man of sexually assaulting her while working as a hotel employee. She was later fired after the employees learned of her record. That's it. Was there... I really hope she's doing okay. She would now be 51. Was there ever any like legal redress for the fact that she smooched on an underage boy? Look, I'm not sure. I think either people did the whole, oh, he's a boy, so it's like fine. But I don't, if they didn't have sex, yeah. I guess they can't really, oh, my, grooming? Yeah. I don't know. The whole thing is. I hate it. She was in prison anyway, so I don't know. So yeah, sorry, that was that was long. <laughs> I guarantee you I am gonna be reading about this late into the night. Like that is I'm sorry, my my reactions probably weren't a bit very animated this evening, but I am just like Oh my god. Because the first set of references that I found to it was, ha, ah, this woman went to high school like twenty times and then I read the thing. There's a lot of molestation. Yeah. I'm not I'm not I'm not feeling happy. Yeah. But I'm invested. And it's just how many times it was you know, it goes in, comes out, goes in, comes out. It was a lot. Yeah. Oh god, that's sad. So what are you gonna tell me, Morty? This is an uncomfortable segue because, you know, you've told me this incredibly, like, emotional, moving story now. <laughs> the motion I'm, picture. I'm just about... <laughs> I'm about to be very silly and rude. No, it's probably good. We probably need a palate cleanser. First question. Do you like shipwrecks? 
Do you find them interesting? I mean, yeah, sure, why not? Do you like weird genitals? Um, define weird. Unusual. <laughs> Deviating from the norm. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, am I appreciating them as an art form by themselves or am I putting them in my mouth? More just acknowledging their existence. I mean, sure. Do you like the Victorian era? Oh, those fuckers did some shit. Yeah. I have the story for you. Oh, oh, I'm here. Now, this has been on my mind since I wandered off in the National Museum in Canberra in 2003. And I was 11 then, so too young to be wandering off. And I found an interactive display of the Tichborne claimant. Interestingly, after that, I wandered into a display of the dead body of a woman found in a drain. And thus my love of true crime was born. And then I went to Questacon and went on this weird roller coaster thing that I'm pretty sure did something bad to my brain, but that's another story for another episode. And this is a this is posthumous identity theft. And it is still debatable whether it was identity theft at all. That's fair enough. Mine was debatable too. We're um fast and loose with our old categories. Do you remember that episode of The Simpsons where it turns out the principal skinner is <laughs> A man named Armin Tanzarian. Yes. That episode is based on this story. What the fuckery? Okay. <laughs> now, my creditos, an excerpt from the Tichborne Claimant, a Victorian sensation by Rowan McWilliam, Wikipedia, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and the Tichborne Case, a Victorian melodrama from the State Library of New South Wales blog. I'm just here drinking my tea. Looking no. very intense. <laughs> It's um like a boba tea, and it's got like the balls, and I can't get them up the straw. And so, then, but then they'll go too quickly and just kill you. Yeah, straight up the throat hole. So I'm looking very intense, but it's just like the the suction power that I require. <laughs> so I think it might be a good idea to start off with the history of the thefty. That's not a word, but the person on whom the theft was done. Is it not a word? Like it sounds like it should be a word. Oh, I was going to say, there's lots of words like that. Like, it really feels like you get the gist of them, like if, if you just make them up. Mm. Have I told you before? My, um, oh no, if she listens to the podcast, it will be revealed. I'll tell her not to listen to this episode. <laughs> but my, my friend, she's Dutch. Her name is Danny, And she, she thinks lambs are called sheeplets in English. Ooh. And Emma and I have tried so hard to avoid telling her the truth. Because, because it's so cute. It's perfect. But if someone said sheeplet or wrote sheeplet, you'd get that they meant like a small sheep or a baby sheep. Oh. It's contextual enough. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. So, Danny, you never heard that. <laughs> Sir Roger Charles Tichborne was an English aristocrat who was the heir to a vast family fortune. In 1854, he was presumed to have died in a shipwreck at the age of 25. He was said to have been of a delicate constitution... Rather tall, with very light brown hair and blue eyes, which, minus the blue eyes, does that remind you of anyone? Wait, what? Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically, my my partner doesn't have blue eyes, but that's just describing him, which I found really funny. Doesn't he? No. They're brown. Clearly I'm I'm not staring into your fiancé's eyes. I I made that mistake when we were first dating, after we'd been together for like three weeks. Whoops. And I don't, like, it's like I have this belief that he's left-handed. Yeah. It's, it's like the M- Mandela effect. <laughs> <laughs> the alt universe split at some point. <laughs> well, why did I think? I think because he's, like, sandy hair. Like, he's got light hair. Yeah. I was like, they're blue. That's how that works. 
That's not how genetics works. Um, so his mum held on to the possibility that he may have survived and washed up on the shore somewhere. And how often does that actually happen outside of Disney? Yeah, that's very, very true. Yeah. Like, I feel like if you're in the sea, your prognosis isn't good. That's that's one way to put it. Yeah. So she heard on the grapevine that he may have ended up in Australia, which... <laughs> that's where all good people go. I felt really guilty that I did laugh at this because I just imagined this like very genteel, serious young man like staggering up the beach being like, I survived. And then the Victorian equivalent of a bogan is like, punch. <laughs> <laughs> She advertised in Australian newspapers, which to me, no disrespect, sounds like a really good way to attract dickheads. Yeah. She offered a reward for information. I don't know. I've just written out, bust out your best writing paper. Be like, yes, I seen him down the pub. Money, please. (laughs) (laughs) Ad stated that she was offering a most liberal reward for any information that may definitely point out his fate. May definitely. What? In 1865, Lady Tichborne was told that William Gibbs, a lawyer from Wagga Wagga, which is near where I grew up, had identified Roger Tichborne in the person of a bankrupt local butcher using the name Thomas Castro. During his bankruptcy examination, Castro had mentioned an entitlement to property in England. He had also talked of experiencing a shipwreck and was smoking a briar pipe which carried the initials RCT. Seems legit. (laughs) Well, he's got a pipe, so... (laughs) That's our man. When challenged by Gibbs to reveal his true name, Castro had initially been reticent but eventually agreed that he was indeed the missing Roger Tichborne. Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not (laughs) sure. Henceforth, he became generally known as the claimant. Now, it's sort of, I think he was probably like, no, that's not me. And then it's like, well, there's money involved. Yep, it's me. (laughs) I was sorely mistaken. Castro is asked to write a will and write a letter to his mother. In the will, he refers to these properties supposedly owned by his family that have just straight up never existed. And he refers to his mum by the wrong name, which is kind of a red flag. Yeah. So, sorry, how old was he when he went missing? 25. Yeah. No. Oh, that old CM Nisha that they use as a plot <laughs> queen on. Did you ever watch Neighbours? Didn't they do that to Harold? I didn't watch Neighbours. Oh, okay. We well, were banned from watching it. Look, that's fair. <laughs> Harold, who's like the general store owner, I'm pretty sure at one point he went missing and came back and had amnesia. And then Harold, and he's like, who? See amnesia. I feel like. And he's there with his pipe. See amnesia is the counterpart to space madness. (laughs) And cabin fever. It's the, the three horsemen of the apocalypse. He also refers to these family stories and memories in a way that are just vague enough that someone who was an imposter could pull it off. Lady Chichborn's younger son, Alfred, had died in February that year. So in my opinion, I think grief may be fucked with the old critical thinking skills. Uh, she wants to believe. Hmm. Gets out her uh, Mulder poster. Yeah. <laughs> Want to believe. Do, 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 but it's like her son and a shipwreck. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really sad. It but is at the sad. Same time, I'm it, sorry that I laughed, but after the Trevor and this, he went missing in 1854. It's now 1865, so it's 11 years, and she believed it because, like you said, she wanted it to be true. 
Also, Lady Tichborne had been told by a clairvoyant that he was alive. And I do wonder if there is financial advantage to telling your wealthy client what they want to hear. Hmm. Hmm. If you were like a traveling soothsayer and someone was like, what do you see in your crystal ball? Yeah. I don't know why that's the voice that I chose to use. I would personally say what they wanted to believe so that they'd keep asking me back. You're very business minded. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you call it business minded. I just call it being a scam artist. But yeah, yeah. Because I was no, I was, sorry. I was I was sound like a dickhead because I was gonna be like, oh, maybe like she wanted to tell her what she wanted to hear because she wanted to be nice. She wanted to give. That's the difference between me. And you. <laughs> I'm gonna go with your theory because that's less depressing. He was instantly accepted by Lady Tichborne as her son, although other family members were dismissive and sought to expose him as an imposter. I would be interested to know how many of these family members had financial interest in him. Oh, bitch. Again, I didn't think of that. I was, well, yeah, like, of course, because he's obviously not the guy. Like, imagine if, you know, say Prince Harry changed his mind and was like, I don't want to be a normal person. I want to be the ruler of the British Isles and (laughs) Prince Charles fell off a boat (laughs) and then William got eaten by a crocodile and, or presumed eaten by a crocodile. (laughs) (laughs) They found his booties by the riverbank. Yeah, they just, they found. No, his pipe, his pipe with his initials. What's it called? Like livery? the bibs and bobs that they wear the epaulets and shit like medals and all that what <laughs> i have no idea what the fuck oh, you. they just find like this pile of medals and badges of honor and things you're gonna have to show me what you made after don't they don't, they go in your jacket don't they yeah <laughs> oh okay yeah but they just find it all like washed up on a beach or something oh no <laughs> and then harry's fuck yeah i'm gonna be the king and then William's like, hey, I crawled out of the al- the crocodile's stomach <laughs> back. Nobody needed to hear any of the things that I just said. Well, I'm not editing it out. That was poetry. <laughs> you made your bed, lying it. So they were second in line to inherit and Roger goes to, goes to sea and gets eaten by the kraken and suddenly they're a written fist in line. And I don't know why that's funny. What? <laughs> <laughs> Although his manners and bearing were unrefined, he did gather support. I feel like if your manners and bearing were super refined, you'd be more suspicious. Like you've been studying. Yeah. Like you've been down under for for 10 years. It wouldn't, it would be more suspicious if there wasn't coarsening. Are you saying Australians are coarse mode? Maybe, (laughs) maybe. In June 1866, the claimant moved to Sydney where he was able to raise money from banks on the basis of a statutory declaration that he was Roger Tichborne. The statement was later found to contain many errors, although the birth date and parentage details were given correctly. Close enough. Like you got you got the birth date and the parents right. I feel like identity theft would have been so much easier back in the day. Because yeah. here and everything, there's like all the digital trails too and we've way more into our documents and whatnot whereas like back in the day it's like yeah you look vaguely like jim it's jim everybody (laughs) jim's back i saw i saw jim get run over by the steam train jim's back (laughs) 
It included a brief account of how he had arrived in Australia. He and others from the sinking Bella, he said, had been picked up by the Osprey, bound for Melbourne. On arrival, he had taken the name Thomas Castro from an acquaintance from Melipilla and had wandered for some years before settling in Wagga Wagga. Why uh, did he not... It's the sea amnesia. Sea <laughs> <laughs> amnesia will fucking get you. Did he have sea... Did he claim amnesia or anything? He was just like, no, I fucking liked it better. Uh, presumably. What he was just like... fuckery? He had married a pregnant housemaid, Mary Ann Bryant, and taken her child, a daughter, as his own. A further daughter had been born in March 1866. Now, I don't know if I'm talking mad shit, but I... Feel like you don't forget details after ten years unless you bounce rocks off your head for fun. Oh, I mean, I think like details, but like not important, important stuff. Side note: for a period, Mr. Castro lived in my hometown of Hay, which makes sense. It is the home of villains and rascals into time immemorial, and they definitely bounce rocks off their head for fun. Hey. Just when I rip on my hometown, I I do it with great affection. Just disclaimer. You don't want them coming. Pitchforks presumably full with hay. Pitchforks, uh, stage coaches. I think there's a stuffed kangaroo. You could beat someone with a stuffed kangaroo. Anyway, so while in Sydney, the claimant encountered two former servants of the Titchborn family. One was a gardener, Michael Guilfoyle, who at first acknowledged the identity of Roger Tichborn, but later changed his mind when he was asked to help with funds. <laughs> so it was like, yep, that's him. Well, you know, if you're so concerned, you should give us some money. Like, no. <laughs> I like it's- that. Puts glasses on. <laughs> oh, I don't know. The second, Andrew Bogle, was a, for- was a former slave at the Duke of Buckingham and Chandos Plantation in Jamaica, who had therefore worked, sorry, thereafter worked for Roger Tichborn's grandfather for many years before retiring. The elderly Bogle did not immediately recognise the claimant, whose 86 kilo weight contrasted sharply with Roger's remembered slender build. However, Bogle quickly accepted that the claimant was Roger and remained convinced until the end of his life. Ride or die. Yeah, and I just, I don't like that because it's... If you're owning slaves... Mm. I mean, that's all you need to say. If you're owning slaves, it's full stop. But, like, this idea of, like, this ride-or-die loyalty... uh, Yeah, it's just... There is a power dynamic there that is uncomfortable. Yeah. I've split it up into points for and points con. The points in support of his claim being... On 29th of December 1866, the claimant visited Alresford in the UK and stayed at the Swan Hotel where the landlord detected a resemblance to the Tichborns without knowing who he was. Like he oh. didn't. Yeah. Lady Tichborn was dead set convinced and there were a number of family members, associates, who were like, well, if she believes it, then it's good enough for us. There was the pipe, labelled RCT, although anyone can carve a pipe. But he like, would have had to have like pre-formed knowledge, wouldn't he? Mm. Motive to carve it. Or, alternate theory, he robbed his corpse. Ooh. Yeah. Or the pipe washed up. He didn't rob the corpse, but... Like in Castaway, how he takes the dead man's shoes off? Yeah. Except it's the dead man's pipe. Oh, yuck. You worried about dead man mouth germs? Yeah. It's not like he had it in his mouth when he died. He might have. Could rigor mortis make you, like, <laughs> clench your jaw on a pipe? So you just, like... Probably. Although you wouldn't, like, light your pipe if the ship is going down. Why not? One last hurrah. Yeah. 
It's like how, you know, all the end of the world movies and people like fuck or drink or whatever. <laughs> so um, Mr. Bogle vouching for him. The Tichborne family's solicitor Edward Hopkins vouched for him. J.P. Lipscomb, the family's doctor, also vouched for him. Which Ooh, this, doctor. Yeah, mm. this is the best piece of evidence to me. So after a detailed medical examination, he reported that the claimant possessed a distinctive genital malformation. Wow. Okay, this is where the genitals come in. I forgot about them for a minute. (laughs) It would later be suggested that Roger Tichborne had this same defect, but this could not be established beyond speculation and hearsay. So if... Does it say what the... (laughs) the, Oh, what? I just imagined it being the dick being like a piece of coral, like it has little dicks coming off it. I do not like that. (laughs) Sorry. Send help. There would be no reason for the doctor to even acknowledge it if he didn't already know in the original person. This certainly proves it. And he was one of the people who believed. So... Why be believing if the, the dick I, wasn't already... I think it's just like the the genteelness of 1866. He probably didn't want to be like, well, you know, this guy had a weird dick too. Like, <laughs> And I've just, I've just written in the margin, your honour, his dick is weird. Do go on. The claimant's seeming ability to recall small details of Roger Tichborne's early life, such as the fly fishing tackle he had used... And members of the military regiment who he had served with recognised him. Now to the cons. Father Chatillon, Roger's childhood tutor, declared the claimant an imposter. Lady Tichborne's brother Henry Seymour denounced the claimant as false when he found out the latter neither spoke nor understood French. Roger's first language as a child and lacked any trace Hmm. of a French accent. Hmm. Okay, but when we're saying it was his first language, like when did he learn English? Not sure. Yeah. So, I mean, let's say it was his first language, but then he was doing the English when he was five plus. I guess you could forget it. Before he said it, like, as a child and everything, I was like, ooh, ooh, bitch. Yeah. I don't think an adult could fucking forget French. And, no. Like, no. The claimant was unable to identify several family members and complained about attempts to catch him out by presenting him with imposters. So they were, hey, you remember. Uncle Bob. <laughs> Uncle Bob. <laughs> And, and he'd just be like, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> Vincent Gosford, a former Tichborne Park steward, was unimpressed by the claimant who, when asked to name the contents of a sealed package that Roger left with Gosford before his departure in 1853, said he could not remember. That one I buy. Was what, was in, what was in this box? I was like, I don't remember. That's yeah. completely plausible. During protracted inquiries before the case went to court in 1871, details emerged suggesting that the claimant might be Arthur Orton, a butcher's son from Wapping in London, who had gone to sea as a boy and had last been heard of in Australia. So a number of inquiries had been made uh, to parties that had encountered Arthur Orton and Thomas Castro and were like, that's the same person. What the fuckery? So he was a sea... Sea victim. Mm. And I just, you know, the meme where it's like you've never seen Arthur Orton and Thomas Castro in the same room. (laughs) (laughs) After a civil court had rejected the claimant's case, he was charged with perjury. While awaiting trial, he campaigned through the country to gain popular support. And in 1874, a criminal court jury decided that he was not 
Roger Tichborn and declared him to be Arthur Orton, so the butcher. Butcher's boy. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Which would make sense how he ended up being a butcher. Yeah. I'm seeing more of that than, you know, this aristocrat. He he randomly washed up on the shore and he just decided to become a butcher. Yeah, and it's it's said that he had a delicate constitution, so presumably he'd see like a side of meat hanging up and he'd be like, oh no. He just got knocked around the boat like <coughs> so much. The pipe went up his nose. <laughs> Did a mini lobotomy and then he just had a complete personality change. It does seem. Before passing a sentence of 14 years, the judge condemned the behavior of the claimant's counsel, Edward Keneally, who was subsequently disbarred because of his conduct. Wow. So the judge was like, you're full of bullshit and you're so full of bullshit that your lawyer is full of bullshit. And he can no longer lawyer because of his bullshit. That should happen more. <laughs> <laughs> well, ju- judges calling people on their bullshit. No, getting disbarred over <laughs> You represented this obvious rapist. Yeah. Fair trial, who said? Oh, man. Sorry, made it too dark. No, I mean, pretty much everything that I considered doing for identity theft had murder in it. Well, like, presumably to theft an identity, you probably have to have yeah. someone to thief it from. You have to get rid of the person who is the person. Yes. So, Maud, hmm. just out of interest, did they ever, ye modern days, did anyone ever try to DNA test? Nothing that I read indicated that, that was the case. <sighs> and what the, what is your opinion, that he was the butcher's boy? I genuinely don't know. I just I think... guess you can't, but like I'm I'm leaning towards Butcher's boy. Yeah. I actually think he might have known Roger Tichborn. Oh, okay. And been like, well, he's dead. So, another week done and dusted. Yeah. How do you how do you feel? <laughs> I feel I am very glad that mental health is something that we discuss with our friends and family. Like us personally. Or just people in general. Or some people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm probably being a little bit too... Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm glad that it's not, like, as frowned upon as it was for Trevor because I feel like that was a... I really... I tried to look and see... I looked on YouTube and I was trying to get, like, a good video on it, but I couldn't find one that was really what I wanted, like, yeah. to go into it. So I'm hoping someone's done a, a doco somewhere because I just... And I really, as I said, she's 51 now. Yeah. I just, I kind of want her to be okay. And It's pretty fucked. But when you were sort of talking and you were sort of getting to the end, I was expecting you to say that she died mm. because of just all of these awful circumstances. Like, mm. Yeah, still, still kicking in like 50. So, you know, she presumably got a little while left. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to do a real uncomfortable segue yeah. right now. How do you feel about next week's topic? Oh, yes. So we just did our little, yeah, raffle. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what we're going to call it? We should name it like the generator. Yeah. Generald. <laughs> like Gerald, but Generald. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's um, go with it. Right. Well, Gerald spat out cults. Trevor would be proud. Yeah. 
oh. I'm so keen for this topic. Yeah. Like, Maud was saying before, oh, I hope we get something that's not about human fuckery. Please give me ghosts or something. I mean, cult, cults is about human fuckery, but, but I it's feel... it's the interesting kind of fuckery. Yeah, it's not like the banality of evil. <laughs> I know, isn't Netflix doing one on Nexium? The Hollywood and the sex and the thing? I hope so. Yeah, I, I thought... If it's not Netflix, it's one of the, you know, streaming people. They're doing a thing. So that'd be fun. But yeah. we probably won't cover them. Whenever whenever there's, like, a really well-known coverage of something, I, I stay away from it because I'm sort of, like, my poor research. <laughs> won't be as... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like we offer a different <laughs> angle to anybody that may be a fan of ours. <laughs> Until next week... Avoid cults. Get ready for some robes. Get Don't. Ready. Yeah, wear your greatest uh, robe, bathroom. Get, get your matching tracksuit, and we will we will see you later. And hail Satan. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> <laughs>